having a few people out here that were haters that said, Hey, what you're doing is dumb. You should never do anything like that. Um, I don't know. That just gave me enough firepower to say, I'm no, I, I, I will. And I'm going to prove you wrong if I have to in the process. The future of dentistry belongs to the innovators. Welcome to Innovation in Dentistry. I'm your host, Sean Zayas, and I believe that the future of dentistry is going to be unbelievably great over the next decade and two decades. But the question isn't that. The question is, are you going to be part of what makes dentistry great? Hey, so today I have the honor to be able to interview Ken Kaufman. Um, so Ken, before I set you up, uh, just let me say thank you for being with me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Sean, on the show. Okay, so innovation, man, that really, it's so broad in so many ways because, you know, there's so many innovative technologies that change industries. In dentistry, there's innovations when it comes to clinical dentistry. And thankfully, you and I both, we're not dentists, so we're not going to talk about anything clinical. Um, but I feel like behind every single clinical or technological innovation, it starts with somebody that has some sort of mindset or belief set that allows them to say, you know what, why not me? Why can't I step up? Why can't I pioneer the change that I want to see in an industry? And I see you can, and I see what you're doing. I see uh, even just with the book that you um, launched just last November, and you are pioneering positive change in dentistry. Tell me a little bit about how you ended up getting into dentistry in the first place. Sure. So I started in dentistry in 2006. And at the time, I was doing financial consulting uh, for kind of small startup businesses. And in uh, the process of like meeting different people and helping different businesses. Uh, one of them was a mobile dentistry group in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I was living at the time. And they had retrofitted a 53 foot trailer with four operatories, figured out how to get um, the x-rays in there, everything. It was, it was very impressive. Um, and they were uh, serving the employers uh, that are, you know, all in downtown uh, Las Vegas, pulling the van up by the employee parking garage, that kind of a thing. So that was my first exposure to dentistry. And I've had some other consulting things here and there and some other things, but I've basically been in dentistry ever since then. Now, dentistry, I feel, I don't know, it's kind of a, it's a strange field. Um, I feel like if you're one of them, they let you in. But if not, it's like, how, how do you, how do you broker that sort of trust? Um, did you find that, that after that initial arrangement that it was easy to continue, um, you know, to, to build trust or not, not necessarily to build trust, but to have that tr trust or credibility instantly? Or do you feel like you really had to, um, I don't know, keep bringing reassurance? Now, what you do on the finance side is incredibly important. So maybe it's just that the need was so big that people were like, hey, you can solve my problem. Let's go with Ken. Well, and so the need is big, but to some degree, the to just try to take and say, here's finance, I'm going to put this in, in this box over here. And okay, you just give me some financial statements regularly and, and do my taxes or whatever. Um, 
I, it took a lot of work for me to build and gain trust and rapport with doctors so that they would trust me as a business advisor, so to speak, or, you know, somebody that could really help them strategically think about their business and figure out how to grow the business. There's a, there's a big difference between hiring a bookkeeper to keep, keep the books and maybe get you some information versus somebody who can look at the entire capital stack and figure out based on the growth plans and the desires of the organization, how do we actually execute a plan that will drive the result that everybody wants. So there's still you know, a need to help the dental community understand the value that can come from the finance function. Um, you know, I, I run into having to educate um, dentists because you know, like if they're going to spend time getting an education, it's not going to be getting an MBA where all of a sudden they realize, hey, I run an organization and these are the, you know, the critical factors that I need to understand in order to really um, scale it if I want to do that or just run it more successfully. Um, so I imagine, like you said, with finance, it's like, well, tell me what the ROI is going to be on why I'm investing in this and why. And it's like, I don't know. So it seems like a no brainer. Now tell me, was it surprising to you at all at first going from uh, more just the corporate world, non-dental to all of a sudden being in the dental space um, when it comes to finance, were there some, some nuances that you had to uh, kind of learn or, or, or study a little bit extra to figure out exactly how dentistry worked? Were there any surprises as far as like just on the financial side of, oh man, I didn't expect dentistry to be like this. Yeah, Sean, that question, you're opening up Pandora's box here uh, for me. Um, <laughs> dentistry is highly complicated, especially when you start to move into the building a DSO multiple practices or putting a formal DSO structure in place. The level of complexity is crazy uh, in some instances and takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to get set up and organized correctly and then to actually get everything to flow through and work properly. And it's a lot of back-end stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, Sean, that I found is, is dentists are super smart people. Um, I have not met one that isn't really smart. Um, and the way that I try to explain how, you know, my role or how I can possibly help them is, is I tell them, look, if you chose to study the things that I've studied and to do the things that I've done, you'd probably be better at me than I am at doing what I do. But the reality is you didn't. Um, and so I come to the table with a specialty, right, and a, and a mindset of how to, you know, drive growth inside of an organization that I've earned. Some of it maybe comes a little bit naturally, but I've had to learn and grow and, you know, plenty of times getting my own teeth kicked in because I messed up or I forgot something or I, you know, just didn't know what I was doing or couldn't see around the corner because I didn't have the right experience. Um, and so, you know, the reality is, is that once, once they understand that the finance function, if it's staffed properly and you've got the right person leading through the process, um, they start to trust it the same way that they realize, hey, my patients trust me because I'm an expert. I probably need to trust somebody over here that's an expert just because they've been doing it longer. And the, the cool thing is, is I have seen some dentists that get like really, really good at business. They study and they go to classes and they join mastermind groups and they actually get really good at business and they even start to get really good at understanding finance. And so it's not that it's off limits. It's just a matter of wherever you put your focus, right? No, I, I love that, Ken. Um, and exactly like you said, like when it comes down to it, I, 
I don't think I could be an amazing dentist, like personally, like the, the excellence you need to be clinically great. Um, and also just the depth of the knowledge that they have to have, like being a great dentist requires a very intelligent person. Um, and yet what I know about entrepreneurship is just my area of expertise, you know, it's my, it's the experience that I have. So I, you're right. I can bring that to the table now. So I'm curious before you got into dentistry, you were the business guy, the CFO, how did you end up falling into that role? Like, uh, was that something early on you knew, Hey, I love numbers. I love the financial side of things. Um, like why, why that, that specialty, I guess. Yeah. Here, here's how it, it all got started. I'll try to summarize this as best as I can. When I was in high school, I took a class on finance and I learned all about the stock market and I was just, I was fascinated by it, how it worked and why things went up and down. And, you know, we had the whole mock portfolio where you'd pick things and watch them go up and down and we had no idea what we were doing, but it was just such a great learning experience, right? So ground level. <clears throat> and so I, I saw that happening and, and how that worked. And I was interested in it. I knew that I was interested in it. Well, I, I went on a mission for my church for a couple of years. I came back and uh, I was starting my second year of college and um, the opportunity came up to, for me to uh, take a job at Fidelity Investments as a brokerage trader. And Sean, this is like, I know this will blow all the millennials away, but back then, if you wanted to trade stocks, you had to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, I want to buy 100 shares of Microsoft. I want to sell 100 <laughs> shares of Oracle. And, and in fact, while I was there, they were just coming out with a telephonic system where you could put in uh, based on, you know, the, the stock symbol and whether you wanted to buy or sell or whatever you, you could, they were just figuring out how to try to automate so that, that you didn't have to call and talk to somebody live. But I was a brokerage trader. I was licensed and did like, I, I learned about the markets. I was in it every day watching and work and, and doing things in it. And it was just so fascinating to me. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. So I basically worked about three quarters time all the way through my last three years of college. For, for this amazing experience and then tried to, you know, do as good, as good as I could at school, knowing that I was more interested in the stuff I was learning at work. Um, and then it got to the point where I graduated from college and I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own firm. I'm going to advise people. I'm going to, I'm going to help the world really tackle this, uh, the, this financial side and how to grow and, and, and invest and all those kind of things. And Sean, it completely flopped. My idea was great. I didn't know how to execute. I, I six months into this venture, I'd taken a $5,000 loan from my dad and I literally had nothing to show for it. I had met lots of people. I just, I didn't, I didn't understand. There was so much that I didn't know and I didn't understand. And it's fortuitous, right? Everything ends up happening for the right reason. So you have this person who knows a lot about finance and all these different things. And then I needed to go find a job. And so I started looking and I found an organization that was uh, young, had just barely started. I got in very early and we grew that company to a hundred million in sales within a few years. And I was hooked. I'm like, whoa, this is amazing. Run and build these businesses and all the challenges and problems and people issues and you know, process and system issues and, and optimizing growth you know, when you're trying to grow so fast. I was, I was enamored and I literally said to myself, how do I like grow in, in all of this? And that, that ultimately motivated, motivated me to go and uh, get an MBA 
and I did it in finance and entrepreneurship because those are my two passions. I, I had found this and I was so excited to, you know, just learn more and, and grow in this area that I coming out of MBA school, I, I worked at a fortune 500 company for a year. And then right after that, I landed into my first CFO role. I'd never been a CFO before, never even been sort of a high ranking anything in finance. And um, it was just an amazing opportunity that fell in my lap. And then I just, I, I was in this process of, I have no idea what I'm doing. Who cares if you've got the title? Can you actually add value or, you know, not completely mess up the business, right? So I was just learning as fast as I could, drinking from the fire hose every day, uh, learning the working capital cycle and how how to drive, you know, your, your debt and equity discussion with uh, growth. And there's just so much that, I was able to learn. It was just, it was amazing. And it was a great training ground for me that I think prepared me to tackle some of the things that I, I've been able to do in dental. So sorry, I, okay. didn't, I hopefully I didn't go too long, but there's a lot going no. on there. No, no, that was, that was absolutely perfect because can, I'm like, I, I need to know like the story because that helps me understand the mindset. Like the fact that you went to school, got super excited about what you were learning. And then you're like, oh my God, let me just go for it. <laughs> like, I'm just going to go for it. There's no guarantees, but really like what, what could happen? And then it, it flops. Like the fact that it flopped and you kept on going, I think, um, is so, so big because then all of a sudden this like ambiguous, what if worst case scenario no longer became ambiguous. The worst case scenario happened and you're like, Oh, like I can just keep going. Like I can just get up, you know, um, and, and just try again. And, you didn't try as a completely independent entrepreneurial, like on your own venture. Um, you went more into the, let me learn the expertise, let me get experience, then get more education. Now, when did you end up stepping out on your own um, after being a CFO? Yeah, so I'd, I'd been there for a couple of years and the entrepreneurial bug was, was still in there. And uh, there, there was a lot of you know rapid growth going on everywhere. So this was... Think about, it was about 2005, 2006. So it was before the 2008 crash. Yeah. And I just, I, I ultimately came to a point where I wanted to keep growing and developing and learning, but the business that I was in wasn't really going to be the platform for me. It, that, that started to become more and more evident. And so I said, you know what, maybe I'm, I'm just going to go figure out how to go do my own thing again. And, and at this point, Sean, Right. The relationship that we have with our spouse, that's the most important relationship we have. And my wife was not used to being married to somebody who was entrepreneurial, willing to like work all hours of the day to, to try to you know see their vision through and and all of those things. And it, it was sort of a, a monumental point in our marriage where my wife said, OK, I trust you. Like you've done this enough. We've done this enough that I know you'll figure out how to make something work. And it usually won't be what you initially start with because it takes, you know, there's the iterations. She's like, I'm good. Whereas before, sometimes there'd be like, well, wait a minute. Cause she came from an environment of a father who had the same job for 40 years mm -hmm. and, you know, it was stable. It was, you know, ev everything that as entrepreneurs drive us insane. <laughs> and, um, but that, so there was a turning point that said, and, and then it was like, the world was my oyster. What am I going to do? And I found really quickly that what I had done, what I'd learned and, and the way I'd helped this comp, the, the company I was at really get on top of its finances and, and um, grow as a result of that. 
and and get a competitive advantage as a result of that. Uh, I, I realized that I had something. So I started talking to some business owners and they're like, yeah, I'd love somebody to come in and help with our finances. I have no idea what's going on. And all I, I talk to my tax CPA once a year and I have no idea what he's even saying. And all he does is tell me stuff I should have done rather than tell me, you know, if you, in the future, what I should do to optimize or maximize things. And so um, it just, I, I just kind of fell into it and started. And, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I got to hustle now. I, 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 I'm going to start talking to different business owners and trying to get referrals and, and uh, build up a consulting practice. So that's what happened. So tell me, what was the shift like when you went from, you know, it's a successful position as uh, a CFO, you know, again, prior to that, like when you first dove into that, you're drinking from the fire hose, you're learning, and then you're realizing, wow, I'm good at this. Um, so then there's a little bit of stability and, and some comfort. Um, do you, why do you think that like itch came? Like, was it because, I don't know, you, you, you craved more autonomy? Like what, what was that desire in you where you're like, you know what? I, was it just the realization I can do this on my own the way that I want to do it? Like what, what was it that you were really looking for? Yeah. So the, probably the easiest way for me to describe this, Sean, is I'm a growth junkie. I love growth. I love the opportunity to learn more and to grow. And so when things start to sort of stabilize mm -hmm. and my opportunity to learn and grow starts to minimize, I, it, there's just something that starts to get a little like restless, um, restless. Like yeah. Restless. That's a great word for it. Thank you. And that that's what led me to ultimately, you know, saying, Hey, I, I just, I need to do something different. I don't, I love business and I love going to work every day, but I don't want to be the guy that just goes to work and puts in the hours and comes home. I want to be doing stuff that pushes me and that gives me an opportunity to learn and grow. And in this instance, the business I was in, there was a business unit of the company that was uh, struggling. And I'm like, I know how to fix that. And I went and I said, Hey, can, can I just, can I do that? And they said, no, 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 you're too important where you're at. you we don't want to distract you in any way. And, and a little light bulb went off like, uh, I, I want to be able to grow. I don't want to be in the pigeonhole, uh, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. And I'm not trying to sound like I'm, I'm just this big land grab and, and always trying to, to, you know, try to take over things. That's not at all where it was. It was more of, okay, if they're going to do that, then that means that's going to limit my opportunity for growth. And so over time, that just starts to grate a little bit. And okay, what, what else is out there that I can... I can satiate this desire to grow. And every career change I've made is it, it, it revolves around the growth. So did you have that specter from that failed, failed experience that ever either whispered to you or was knocking on the door being like, Ken, you know, if you step out, it's going to be like that all over again. You know, like, did you have to battle that when you stepped out again your second time? Absolutely. And the interesting thing is in this instance, so when I stepped out the first time or when I, I did my own thing, I didn't really have anybody that cared much, whether I did or didn't. I was, I was a nobody in the world. When I stepped out this time, I had some people who were very adamantly um, angry and, and didn't want that to happen and felt like the investment they had made in me was, you know, that I was just sort of speeding in their face and, and, and those kind of things. And so what, what ultimately resulted was somehow 
through the years, because, you know, I experienced a lot of rejection and those things in life, just like everyone. But I, instead of listening to that and saying, that's forecasting my future, what I did is I said, what if I put that all right here and just let it become the motivation to crush it? And that's, that's ultimately what happened. I just felt so motivated because it's like having a few people out here that were haters that said, Hey, what you're doing is dumb. You should never do anything like that. Um, I don't know. That just gave me enough firepower to say, I'm no, I, I, I will. And I'm going to prove you wrong if I have to in the process. I mean, it sounds a lot like Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> like, you know, he had so many doubters when he was in college you know, battling for a, a starting position. And then all of a sudden going into the draft, he doesn't get picked till pick 199. And what that translated to him was there's so many, so many teams that didn't believe that he had what it took. There were so many owners and management that was willing to bet against him saying, oh, he's not going to be anybody. So it's like, what do you do with that? Do you take that as like, I'm going to let this define who I am. I'm not, I, I, my value is based off what they've given me. Or the exact opposite, like what you did. I'm going to let this be a fire in my belly that I'm going to prove them wrong because I know I can do this. Um, that is that is amazing. So tell me the timing from first venture, you graduated, step into the first venture, then you get a lot of corporate experience, and then all of a sudden you step out into your own consulting. What is that time frame? Um, so this was basically 2004 to 2006 range. And, and I ended up that consulting business I ran until about 2010. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying you only got like two, two or three years of the corporate experience. Like it was really, wow. I thought maybe it was like a period of eight or 10 years. So, so you had that bug was there like really quickly. You knew, okay, like take the training wheels off. I, I, I got a lot of experience, but I'm not meant for this. I, I and see this this whole podcast, Ken. It's for dental professionals that have some other dream or some other passion. And I'm not saying it's other than dentistry. Maybe they're an associate right now, and they crave that growth potential or that autonomy or that freedom to be like, I think I can do it. Or maybe they're already a solo doc, but they want to scale and maybe start some sort of a, a DSO or come together with another friend of theirs and form a DSO. And it's that whole jump of like, but, but what, what if, <laughs> like, what if it doesn't work out? Yeah. And my whole thing is I'm convinced people are going to be so much more, and it's a, it's a heavy word, but more tormented by the risks they don't take. Um, the whole idea of the power of regret. I think people are going to regret what they didn't step into. Even if they ended up failing, it's it's like it makes for life. That that's adventure. That's the unknown. That's that's the risk that we all get to be part of that makes life amazing. That we don't know and we get to strive and try without a guarantee. And that's where when the success comes or when there is some sort of um I don't know, the marketplace re rewards what we're doing, that's when that reward really can be felt because it's like, yeah, I, I did that. And I love yeah. Ken that you mentioned that your wife was there and she was supportive and i can imagine how hard that must have been for her like you said seeing her dad in this stable um fixed type of employment and then all of a sudden to be married to someone <laughs> that's 
you, you know, willing to take on that risk. Was there a mindset? I know you did share something about the whole, um, almost the way that you, you viewed the doubters, so to speak. But was there, there another mindset that you were grappling with during the season um, that, that either you, you learned or a mindset that you had to let go of in order for you to enter in, like to that, that next season? Yeah, so I'd say the mindset that I started to just adhere to and love is the thought process that, and, and there, somebody quote, quote, said this before I did, so don't think I'm, like, I innovated this. I, I just can't remember who it was, but they said, there's only two potential outcomes. You succeed or you learn. Mm. So failure is a tool to learn, and it's, it's on the opposite side of success usually in the short term, but often it lays the groundwork. And so when I started to understand that principle and that framework, I started to realize, whoa, okay. So I actually did learn a lot and I shouldn't beat myself up because maybe this didn't work out or that didn't work out. And you, you know, all your listeners, I'd encourage them to try to keep this frame as active as possible because it's like, you know, what you might call and see success or failure, the failure may end up becoming your greatest success because of what it teaches you and what it gives you. And we're just, we're these human, imperfect human beings having this imperfect human experience. And I think we're here to just like get every opportunity and every rep to just learn and experience what what's there and not be afraid of it, not be, not shy away from it, but be willing to like, just go and the failures end up turning into successes over time. I, but going along with, with your point there, which is you, we, the regrets of never having tried, like I would be so frustrated and, and just feel like I've got something inside that's got to explode here at some moment because I, 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 I regret not having tried when I had the opportunity to. Yeah. And I was talking uh, the other day with some family member and, you know, I was just telling them a little bit about the podcast because they were asking how I was doing. And, and I was sharing about the type of things that I talk about and the type of, you know, individuals that I talk to and the mindsets. And it was really sweet. They just looked at me with like all like honesty and sincerity. And they were like, um, they were a little older. They were like, I, I never did the things I wanted to do because I was too scared to pursue them. And it was just this like sad acknowledgement, but yet at the same time, I applauded them to have to, the courage to actually just share it and, and connect of like, I wish someone could have, I don't know, ins inspired me or, or el busted that illusion of safety. I think this is one of those things like people think that staying on the sideline is safe. And it's like, well, how are we defining safety? Because it's like, there's still no guarantees even on the sideline. That you're going to experience fulfillment or be able to express what you're meant to express or like I, I like to say like shine the light that only you can shine like there's no guarantees that just doing following the same path that everyone else follows is going to make you happy yeah. you know so that that framework that you said is so powerful you either succeed or you learn and and both obviously both that ultimately is success right 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 and, and when you realize well, then where does failure, which one does it fit underneath? Well, yeah, it fits underneath the learning. Then that means the person that so-called fails 12 times this year, maybe once a month when they're trying something, they just learned 12 things that are 
helpful that they can, you know, now, now be more intelligent with the next time they, they start something. Um, and that's why it's like, man, if, if I can iterate and I can launch something into the marketplace 30 times this year versus five times this year, I'm going to learn 25 more things. If So that's why even where speed comes into it. And I know a lot of dental professionals, it makes sense. The idea of a failure is very clear when it comes to something clinical, you know, like, oh, bad outcome, the crown, I didn't place it well. <laughs> Can I, I really can't say too many clinical things here. <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. people are gonna be like, oh my God, he's not a dentist. Yes, I'm not. Um, but it's such a different mindset the second you're thinking about business, uh, an entrepreneur, just stepping up and leading and pioneering in the way um that just brings that sense of fulfillment. Um, I I love that. And I think it's just so liberating to be like, oh, it's not a failure. It's, it's not a failure. It's only a failure if I stop <laughs> and if I don't, if I don't actually learn from it. Yep. And, and I think too, Sean, just to add, you know, as you're talking about the family members, it's also never too late to change the frame. There's nothing stopping us from waking up tomorrow and saying, you know what? I'm going to take that thing that I've regretted and I'm going to do something about it today. And, and maybe it's not, you know, starting a business or going and, you know, doing anything grand, but just changing the frame to say, I'm not going to regret that anymore because maybe I ended up, I, I actually did make all the right decisions because I've ended up here and I'm really happy where I'm at. Or if I'm not happy where I'm at, it, it's never too late. It, all it is, is just turning the switch and saying, and, and reframing, and then you're empowered to go do whatever you want to do. So Ken, it sounds like it wasn't something that was just innate, that this is just who you are in, in the sense of that mindset. That was something you actually had to work towards. You, you, someone shared it with you and you latched onto it. And I think that's a really key thing because a lot of people read a lot, go to seminars, learn a ton in the sense of they're getting exposed in their mind to lots of information that could set them free or that could liberate them but it doesn't actually mean they take hold of it yeah. and, and implement in their life where it's like, well, no, this is something that I need. I need this paradigm. I need this framework. I need to reframe how failure is because it sounds like you're a lot like me. The idea of failing is terrifying. I don't like that. <laughs> so yeah. if what I'm doing seems insecure and I think it's going to lead to something that's viewed as a failure, man, it's like, my, my psychology even like changes. It, it's like, or sorry, not psychology, my physiology. I, I mean, like I, I, I'm nervous. Maybe I start getting a little like my palms get sweaty. Like my body is already starting to feel negatively because of the way that I'm viewing something as mm -hmm. potential for failure. Where if I think of it as potential for forward movement and potential to learn and grow, that changes everything. So true. Sorry, I just I just love that. Like, thank you so much. That was just gold. <laughs> so, yeah, Ken, you, I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it is it a little laggy right now? Uh, I don't know. We're we're good. We're good. Go ahead, though. Okay, so I'm curious. When did you all of a sudden, um, when you come into dentistry, right away, were you pretty much aware of the the DSO space? No, I didn't know anything. This is in 2006. Uh, DSOs were still not really that common, to be honest. And and 
consolidation or building group, you know, groups of practices and those things wasn't, wasn't very common at all. But there was the, the person I was helping was definitely wrestling with the fact that he had this mobile clinic, he had two um, uh, brick and mortar clinics, and he was trying to just figure out how to, how to run and manage um, all of these, all, all the pieces and parts of that. So all of a sudden, I'm guessing, because I, I feel like it's been what, maybe, maybe 12 years since um, the emergence and really the, the momentum with DSOs. Um, and I feel like that's probably your sweet spot. Not to say that a solo practitioner, it's just that they're probably less, res they're more resistant, I mean, to invest in finance because, you know, their operations probably can't offset, offset it as much. But is your sweet spot like the, I don't know, probably even, even if it's just three to five locations all the way up to, I'm guessing you can even help organizations with 50 plus. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, in the consulting days, uh, the way I would have put it is um, you probably would need somewhere between three to five locations. You probably need a very fractional type of a finance leader who can be there, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a few hours a month or maybe a, a day a week or what, whatever's needed um, to help just give some leadership and guidance. And then as you move up the food chain, I mean, once, once an organization and this isn't just dentistry. But once an organization is hitting 15, 20 million, 25 million a year, that's when full-time finance leadership starts to become necessary. Uh, if you want to stay compliant and if you really want to try to optimize the business and, and really understand the business model and how to, how to drive cash flow into the future. So um, in dentistry, it's sometimes a little bit earlier because a DSO structure creates some more complexity that gets really messy as you scale because... Sometimes you'll have uh, dentists, you know, well-intentioned as all get out and great business ideas and great business models. But if they don't have a lot of the operational pieces figured out, they end up proliferating kind of a mess. And, and then you there's quite a bit of cleanup that has to happen. Um, and so it's finding that place where it's not too big of a mess yet and it can get cleaned up and then in the right structure, financial structure can be put in place so that then it levers, it becomes leverage and it grows. So right now you're full-time with a company. Do you do anything on the side? So if the listeners are like, oh my gosh, like I want to get a hold of Ken, um, what, what services do you offer? Like, is, is yeah. it mainly um, just the thought leadership with, with the book and hey, people can get a hold of that? Or is there something that you're also doing on the side? So it's primarily the book. And the only other thing, and I, I just, I don't have time to, to be involved in consulting or those things, but I'm happy if people want to reach out to me and they want a reference to somebody who could be a finance leader. So I'd ask them a few questions. How many practices do you have? What's your goal? Where do you want to go? Do you have a DSO structure? Some things like that. And then I can point them just because I've been in the industry so long and I know a lot of the, um, you know, the, the finance uh, companies and, and accounting firms and things. And I can point them to somebody who can get them going. And, and these are folks who have read the book who understand what the nine required clarity tools are. They know how to implement those. Um, so that, that's really the only other place. And I, I can just point them where to go. So tell me the vision for the book. When did that become something that you were like, there's a book in me and I want to be known for this and let me just step up and do this. Like when, when, when did that first even come into your awareness? Um, so it came into my awareness probably four or five years ago. And it was once I'd been in the DSO world long enough 
and I was, I, I started to understand what was going on. I started to have people asking me questions about how do I do this or how do I do that? Or I would hear them on stage talking and say, oh, that's a really bad idea. Please don't do that. <laughs> there's a better, there's a better way. There's a better way to structure some of, some of these different things. And so <clears throat> I started to feel compelled to say, okay, I've somehow amassed all of this information and knowledge. Not that I started out intentionally to become a dental finance expert, but that being in essence what had happened, um, I started to just feel compelled, more and more compelled to, to write it down. And so, so I don't become a bottleneck to people to say, well, if I could consult a few companies and then I'm gone and then there's no access to this information, I just felt more and more compelled to give back to the industry, which is given to me so much and uh, get it, get it all down in writing. And, and the hope Sean actually in, in putting in writing is I wanted dentists, dentist entrepreneurs to read the book, but the more important thing is once they read it is to hand it to whoever their lead finance person is, because it is the playbook um, that needs to be executed on in order to get this part of the business shored up and becoming a strategic part and a, and a huge asset to, to the ability of the organization to grow. Okay, so I want to circle back to the playbook really soon. But first, in, you know, you have the idea, I, I could, I can, you know, I'm capable of writing this book. Um, what, what resistance or obstacle or, or wall did you, was probably the hardest to overcome from idea to actually, like, it's written as of November, you just launched it, it got published. What was probably the, the biggest obstacle you had to overcome? how do I carve off enough mental mind share from what my professional commitments already are that, you know, I, I want and you have a family, right? Great work. And yeah. And all these things. So how, how can I get that bandwidth? Uh, and so there were a couple of starts and stops in the process where I would get going a little bit and I'd say, Oh, I just don't know if I can do this. I've got so many commitments here and here and here, knowing that those needed to be my, my you know biggest priority, of course. And, um, so it was, it was a number of those. And then a shared friend that we have that you mentioned when we were connecting earlier, uh, Darren Akapan is the one who said to me, you know what, Ken, like, it would be amazing if you would write a book. And it was almost like when he said it, he like this weird thing of, I felt like I, I now had permission to do it. And, and hearing it from Darren, who's such a well-respected industry leader who kind of knows yeah. everybody in the marketplace. He was basically saying to me, Ken, nobody knows what you know in its in totality and nobody is going to attempt to ever try to do this. I need you to do this because I need somewhere to refer people when they're running in to these kinds of challenges. That was in essence, the, the underlying message. And I just felt empowered at that moment. Like, whoa, okay, you know what? I do need to do this. If a guy like Darren is saying, Ken, this needs to get out there to the world. Um, and so that's when I started to figure it out. And Sean, I don't, I, you and I didn't talk about this, but I actually got my daughter involved. Um, and it was mostly because when, <laughs> when I told my family that I wanted to do this, my, she looked at me and she said, a finance book. That's like the most boring thing in the world. And so I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Um, you, I, I'll teach you everything I know about dentistry. I, I, I took her to a couple of conferences even, and she interviewed dentist entrepreneurs who were trying to grow. And I said, you're going to create a fictional dentist who all of these dentists can relate to. And what, what you're going to do is you're going to write this amazing storyline that 
Julia, the dentist is going to be running into these problems and I'm going to show up with the technical content and show how if they do these things, it will help them overcome these challenges and problems. But I need you to make it very relatable so that a dentist can pick up the book and say, whoa, I, I've had similar problems. I've had similar mindset uh, challenges like what Julia had in the book and so on and so forth. And so once she started to get involved and we just we said, all right, we're, we're going for it. And and we just said we're going to dedicate X amount of hours a week and here's how we're going to do it. And we just then stuck, stuck to the plan. Okay. So I love that for two reasons. One, I love the story about Darren because, um, it's crazy sometimes that all we need is some sense of permission. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're already wanting to do it, but just another person coming along. And that's why even our listeners right now, I always tell people what they get to hear between the lines of what we're saying is more important than what we're saying. Because as you're saying and talking about your book, who knows what they're thinking about of like, oh my, like that I put on the, the side or I, I never finished that or that's a dream in my heart. And it's like right now we're saying, well, you have permission. You have permission to step forward and do that thing. And I love also, Ken, that you are so resourceful and you used an amazing resource you had in your daughter. Like not only because that's like wisdom but the idea of just even the daughter daddy like bonding to be able to come up with something together you know i have three daughters my oldest is um wow it's funny that i had just oh 13. <laughs> and that's awesome thank thank Girl you and long. yes and just that idea of together at some point with my daughter or my my sons um getting to collaborate or partner on something and co-create that's just beautiful. Like that is absolutely beautiful. And I'm sure there's challenges that come with it, but, um, by and large, that is, that's just wonderful. Like that. I, I love that. That's actually your story. Like, I love <laughs> that. That's what you, you did to write this book. Now going back to the book, it's about financial secrets. And you said it's the playbook. Can you, can you share a play or can you share one of the, one of the secrets that you think would would encourage or help people out? Sure. So I can, I can list off a couple. The first one is, is I go into the value of a finance leader, how to find one and how to plug them in to the organization. We get into accrual accounting and its level of importance, historical financial reporting and, and why that's so important. We get into associate compensation and equity models um, and the pros and cons of each. Um, and it ultimately comes to uh, the, the final clarity tool in the book is uh, what's, referred, what's referred to as like success and prioritization, where once you, you start to hit the certain momentum in the organization and now it's you're gonna, you have way more ideas than you'll ever be able to implement because things are getting complicated and rolling out some new thing in one dental practice is easy when you've got 20 practices. <laughs> it's a disaster if you don't really invest and figure out how to get something like that rolled out if you're making a change through the organization. And so um, at the, the very end, it, it gives a it gives really solid tools for how to prioritize all the great ideas and projects you have and how to continue to grow and build the business at that stage of success where sometimes success gets a little bit too quiet for some of us and it gets a little bit overwhelming because it's like wait a minute I, 
I don't need to jump in and solve a million problems anymore. And that's how I, that's what I did in the early days of getting this started. And hopefully it helps dental leaders step into that next role of being the CEO of their business. If they want to be that, sometimes they'll hire somebody to do that too. But if mm -hmm. they want to be it, it'll give them the mindset and the tools to be able to say, okay, this is how you run an organization. And this is how you build a culture. And this is how you develop something that can continue to grow beyond just the, the crazy entrepreneurial throwing things together days. Gosh, I love that. Okay. So tell our listeners where they could buy that book and the title of it. Yeah, sure. So it's called uh, DEO's uh, financial secrets to grow dental organizations, and it's available on Amazon, uh, audible, there's hardcover, there's soft cover and, um, just about any other outlet too, but Amazon's the easiest place to go get it. Okay. So this might be ironic because I ask people this, that don't actually have books, but since I'm asking an author, I wonder if it, it just might be different. So anyway, uh, looking at the next decade of your life, if that was a chapter of a book, what would that chapter be called? The next decade. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic question. I love that question. It's making me think. Um, I think it would be because I had I've had these interesting phases, but the next ten years, the next the next phases, it's about me becoming the leader that I've always needed to be, um, and like digging in and really refining myself and realizing that sometimes the grit doesn't matter. Sometimes the hustle doesn't matter, uh, but learning to lead at, at a continued, you know, growing level. Um, and I don't know, not necessarily the company has to be bigger or smaller, or the people need to be, you know, this or that. It's more about how can I become the most effective leader that I possibly can? Because in life, um, I believe there's really only about three things that cannot be commoditized, even by chat GPT and AI. Um, the main one is leadership, um, the ability to understand people, the ability to know how to help them be successful. And because the better leader you are, the more scalable you can build an organization because people become the cogs, so to speak, in the wheel of making the organization successful. So I'd say it's me going to the to the 10x level of uh, being just a way better leader than I've ever been. That almost sounds like there's another book in you. <laughs> Maybe I, I, it'll be in 10 years though. Cause I got to go make all the mistakes and figure it all out. And then, and then I can tell you how it went. <laughs> okay. So Ken, um, so here's the question. Here's the, here's the closing question. Um, you're walking down the street and you see Ken, maybe let's say at 18 years old. And you're going to pass him and you just have a brief moment to communicate one sentiment to the 18 year old version of yourself. What do you share to him? Go for it. Don't hesitate. Go for it. Don't doubt yourself. Just go for it. Okay. So Ken, I, <laughs> I have loved this because a, I've gotten incredibly inspired. It is so clear that you are all about growth that you, you won't just let yourself get restless. Um, you have to step up and keep going. And that's why even that, like you said about the next chapter of your life, I am so on board with that. You becoming 
the most um, aligned, intentional, purposeful leader that you were meant to be is, is, is beautiful. And I even think for the listeners, it's like, man, when you were talking about the wall um, of just carving out time, trying to figure out how to actually get this book to completion, I wonder how many books, I wonder how many initiatives, and I wonder how many dreams are on pause right now that I just want to encourage people to hit resume on, hit, to hit play, to, to keep going. And I love that you kept going. I love that you stepped out of that corporate job so that dentistry could receive the gift of who you are oh, and that you were able to even just write that book. Like what, what a gift. So thank you so much for being a pioneer, for being an innovator and for letting me interview you today. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for your powerful insights. Thank you. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow so you never miss an episode. To learn more about what's going on in dentistry, check out innovationindentistry.com.